Hello and welcome to episode 417 of the Crate and Crowbar, a gaming podcast being recorded on the 11th of May, 2023. I'm Marsh Davis and I'm joined tonight by Jamie Britton. Hello, we've met in real life now. We have. Yeah, what a what a date that was. <laughs> Two dates. I got to I, I managed to number close and get to a second date. Double Marty. <laughs> Which also had another Crate and Crowbar person there too. It did, yeah. It was, we were inundated with fleshy encounters during my brief <laughs> sojourn to the UK. It was, it was good. I, I got to meet you, I got to meet Graham, I got to meet Tom Francis. And sundry other people related to this podcast as well. <laughs> yeah, that was good. Yeah, no, that's right. Excellent fun was had by all, I assume. I know, I, I hated every minute of it, but you know, I, I put on a brave face, it's fine. But uh, happy King Week, Jamie. Happy King Week, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's great, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I know you're a big fan of, of the monarchy, and uh, you just can't get enough of prostrating yourself in the muck before them like a fucking peasant. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I love it. I love it when people get like pointlessly horny for incredibly right-wing politicians as well, oh, um, yeah. because they're dressed up like Dark Souls bosses. Mm, um, I love their vulgar trinkets covered with stolen gems. That's what I like most about them. It's really good. I love the tender kiss that William gave his dad. <laughs> <laughs> did you see it live? Did you? Did you? Uh, were you out there with your bunting, desperate to catch a glimpse of this parade of fur cloaked bellends? I did. <laughs> I did not see it live, nor did I watch any footage of it um, beyond aforementioned uh, mordant porn. Um, uh, I just, I was just there for the memes, just there for the dank memes uh, on Twitter later on. Uh, but my God. What an absolute shower of cunts. <laughs> just, I can't be doing with them. It's Ridiculous. so weird. What was, um, that's what's so strange about it for me is how like simultaneously new and not new the whole thing is. Like I I mean obviously you got a new king, so you, you could put that in the new column. But it's also he's not new, is he? I've been sick of that fucker for decades. Like, I felt like I was born sick of him. Also, monarchy. That's not new, is it, Jamie? That's that's definitely in the old column. And, you know, some might say too old. It should be best left in the fucking past, along with, like, rickets and shitting in rivers. It is absolutely everything that sucks about this country. Our endless reverence towards whatever the fuck that represents, uh, conjoined with our deep and abiding love of um, uh, public displays of snivelling uh, uh, from all sides, essentially. It's just a big festival of, of awful. Um, <laughs> but the, the, the really weird bit of it is all the fucking magic that they they brought into the ceremony. Like actual magic artefacts, yeah. like swords and rocks that have somehow been abused with occult meaning given really, like... Like names that you would get from the most banal fantasy loot table, like the glove of fate or whatever, and all of this stuff, like the the weird shit, like spooning oil onto Charles' naked torso, like what the what the fuck? It's so mad, and and we haven't agreed to any of it. I don't remember like making any of this part of my national identity, and like the thing is, like Elizabeth lived for such a fucking long time. That we haven't seen a coronation in what I don't know three three generations, right? At least I believe it's been four thousand years since the last one, <laughs> and yet we we're told all of this stuff like these fucking rocks with names is all very traditional. But like yeah. traditional to whom? 
Not to it's anybody like, who's currently alive. <laughs> it's this weird, it's like they've got this weird like box, like a bo- an old box of old games in the attic. But instead of games, it's this like ridiculous box of insane colonial, um, you know, <laughs> plunder that they're going to sort of <laughs> smear on each other. Um, the, yeah, the, I guess they'll just put it back in until the next one, um, which, you know, likely won't be, be such soon. a long wait. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, do you know what else has been poured, like magic oil, onto the body of a geriatric monarch? Tell me. That's right. 10 out of 10 review scores have been poured. <laughs> this is a perfect segue. <laughs> onto The Legend of Zelda, Tears of a Kingdom. Oh. And that's a game that we aren't going to talk about because we are rebellious Republicans and we shun the insipid, capped-offing, forelock-tugging, monarchic propaganda of The Legend of Zelda series. And fittingly, much like the proletarian spirit itself, are consigned to the Darkest Dungeon 2. Darkest Dungeon 2, yes. Another uh, long procession uh, towards a horrifying uh, Lovecraftian centre somewhere (laughs) deep in the souls of man. Um, Yes, I've been playing Darkest Dungeon 2. I I mentioned it on the last pod I recorded, which was a long time ago, but I was talking about that with Tom S., Um, and then listening back to that podcast triggered me into um, actually buying it <laughs> again, which I'd already done um, on Epic. So I, I did it. I did a stupid thing, which was not just wait for the early access to be over, but just play the last two weeks of a of year long early access uh, run that they did. Um, mm. So yeah, Darkest Dungeon two. So in context, um, Darkest Dungeon one, I think, is a wonderful game. It is a game that really, really got to me in a way that isn't at all good. Like it, it really in it's like pleasingly Lovecraftian what that game did to me, um, but also horrifyingly Lovecraftian. Because what happened was I was having a I was having a tricky time of it at work. I can't even remember what was going on, but it was a bit of a tricky time. And I was like, oh, I don't know what I'll do. I'll displace the anxiety I'm feeling about uh, my career and my chosen life path and all the people who depend on me by not working but instead um, pouring 50 hours in one week into a campaign of Darkest Dungeon, um, which I played obsessively, sort of at the exclusion of all other activities. Um, And I think I got about 50 hours in, I got to my first voyage into the Darkest Dungeon, which is like, you know, it's the beginning of the end game, but you're not quite there yet in that game. It's, you know, and um, uh, total party wipe. And I realised as I was playing that section that the whiff noise the game makes when you fail to make a hit was like triggering something terrible inside me like really like (laughs) something explosive and horrible was happening within me and I realized I was far 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 too deep in this game which is wonderfully one-to-one with what the game is about and what it's trying to (laughs) engender in you but I was I went too far (laughs) and I, I had to kind of like you know total party wipe on that mission and I had to be like, right, uh, I'm uninstalling this now. This is <laughs> this has gotten to me in 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 ways that I do not want it to get to me. And since then, I've gone back and and I've never actually completed it, but I have sort of uh, clicked around with it, and it hasn't been, um, you know, a deeply unnerving form of psychological torture. It's just been fun. So I felt safe enough to get into Darkest Dungeon two when it came out. Uh, one of the reasons that Darkest Dungeon one caused such unyielding anxiety towards me is because it's one of those games a bit like the modern XCOMs, particularly XCOM 2, which has two layers of gameplay. It has the sort of JRPG-inspired combat stuff, which I absolutely adore, and then it has a big 
like um, it's your town basically that you're upgrading and then you're using that town to upgrade your heroes and various aspects of your play as you go along. And the type of brain I have, I'm just never good at managing those two things and combining them together to kind of create success. I always just feel completely overwhelmed and uh, sort of put off by by it really. It, it, the fun never quite unifies. Um, and which is why Darkest Dungeon 2 is such a pleasure for me because, uh, you know, they've been very clear um, uh, on their sort of stated aim for this game, which is not to kind of really try and recreate Darkest Dungeon 1 which, but or to kind of even do a sequel to it, um, but is to try and create a kind of different experience uh, which has this roguelike form. And for me, it's, it's perfect because it feels like they've really listened to players like me who love Darkest Dungeon, love all the you know, the combat and the art and the music and all the kind of the world of it and come up with something um, that kind of preserves all that but makes the metagame and the combat much more closely linked and much less, um, you know, much more kind of uh, closely entwined as well. So you're not um, making decisions that are somehow going to screw you, you know, nine hours later when you realise you should have upgraded a different thing. The roguelike structure means that you're, you're on a map that looks like a kind of Slay the Spire map. Um, actually has a very similar structure in terms of the kind of fights and bosses and encounters as, Sp- as Slay the Spire. Although you do get to drive a coach um, and horses through this kind of dark, crumbling world to your uh, uh, ultimate destination. And uh, yeah, it's just run-based. So I think I believe a successful run would take about four hours rather than the sort of 50 to 90 that a Darkest Dungeon 1 could take. Um and that layer, even though there are upgrades that you do after collecting points on each run for hitting various conditions, um, it's much more run-focused. Um, and so that aspect of it is just great because that's perfect for me because I was never very good at the uh, meta stuff in the original game. The game itself, and I know you've played a little bit of it, um, mm. the combat's pretty similar. But what I would say is that the art and the... Oh, animations yeah. and the music and sound are just second to none are absolutely amazing mm. they've managed to preserve the kind of beautiful sort of 2d sprites type stuff of the original um and turn them into these absolutely sumptuously conceived models for both the heroes and the enemies there's so many little um little movements they do there's one enemy who's like a drummer like a kind of guy a bad enemy who will bang his drum and buff the other kind of enemies in his party and the way that they've animated his his drumming moves and the way that the sound blends into that and like there's one moment where after a particular drumming move he spins his drumstick round and just um lifts his visor up on his helmet with the drumstick after it's just sort of fallen down in front of his face and it's just so characterful and wonderful and then you've got Wayne June's voice booming over everything, um, you know, uh, using words like bituminous, which is a very marsh word, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's a word that I can imagine you using on a on a podcast and going, oh, I'll have to look that one up. Not with a, a delicious French-Canadian accent, I have to say. <laughs> Absolutely. So, and yeah, and just the sort of sound profile of the whole game is amazing. It has this kind of screaming... Uh, soundtrack which kind of never stops uh, kind of squeezing your the life out of you or your bones um, and that that those sounds that were such existential torture to me a few years ago are back um, 
<laughs> and uh, uh, once again, it's kind of you can feel it, kind of yeah, really get to you. It's it's extraordinary. <laughs> so I'm just having a, I'm having a great time with it. Um, some of the some of the baddies are really disgusting and horrible. Um, you know, there's one boss called uh, the Librarian who is a big flaming guy on a um, one of those kind of ladders that you have in libraries who throws burning books at you. Um, uh, and he's horrible, and I've died to him many times. Uh, and another uh, boss who is a series of hanging padlocks, which somehow manages to be absolutely obscene and disgusting as well. Um, one other thing I really like about it is you have these hero stories where you go to these shrines and your hero will remember um, uh, something that happened to them before they kind of went on this terrible voyage. And uh, uh, in that, they'll often use the kind of standard gameplay of Darkest Dungeon to tell a little story. So one I played today, and this is just the first one for the Grave Robber, so very minor spoilers, is is they tell a story of you were the wife of this drunken asshole. Um, and the moves that you're given in your kind of little scene you have with him are kind of like placate. So you're trying to placate him and you have to placate him enough for him to stop attempting to clobber him so you can poison his drink and kill him. And they all do that and in-engine <laughs> oh, uh, combat sequence where you're sort of, um, you know, sort of trying to find your way to poison his drink and so you can puke his, all, puke his guts up. Um yeah, Wonderful. so uh, that is that is the game basically. I'm 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 kind of crazy addicted to it at the moment. It's it's um, really good fun. That art style is is incredible. I was really um, I was really worried when they announced that the, the next game would be 3D because the the first game has such striking style based on uh, Barassa's. I don't know what his first name is. He's Barassa on Twitter, but his art style is is just this really thick. Uh, sort of line arts, really inky line art, coloured, coloured between. But uh, the the kind of it's it's essentially it could easily be two tone, like there's just incredible stark sh- shadows. Um, and translating that to three D, I would have thought was impossible. I'm not, I, I re- actually like really dislike, generally speaking, the sort of um, faux cartoon style that a lot of games in the early 2000s went for like borderlands particularly where there was uh, some amount of like cell shading and then textures on the character just inexplicably had some amount of hatching on them uh that, that really annoyed me because <laughs> uh, that's not how sh- shadows work that's not what hatching means you can't just turn like a uh, the plane of a of a of a surface hither and thither and expect the hatching to make sense still hatching represents like shadow and depth anyway but the point is that this game manages to avoid this somehow and like however that those models are manipulated through animation each frame of that animation still looks like a a perfect piece of line art um it's really remarkable with such a such a sense of weight as well like the way that you know you're one of the char- well many of the characters will swing their weapon and then as they dart back into the lineup they'll the weapon will fall to the ground and they'll drag it along the floor back towards them um, well that's i was exactly going to say that that they in fact what they do is they almost never swing their weapon like when you attack somebody it cuts almost instantaneously to the point point of collision and then retracts and that's that's uh, like I, th- I think that's that probably has a name in like uh, kung fu film <laughs> yeah. cinematography or something like that. But uh, it, it makes everything feel incredibly powerful and instant. Uh, yeah, amazing the, stuff. The Vestal in the first game, who kind of she's a nun who who fires holy bolts from the sky, <laughs> um, 
in the original game, she was kind of, her design looked a bit like a kind of, uh, I don't know how to put it other than to say she was hornier than, <laughs> you know, she's kind of horny nun, I guess, would be would be an apt description of her. And in this game, she's <laughs> she doesn't look at all horny. Um, she looks furious and she's holding a big book um, that she looks up from, performs her moves, and then returns her furious, steely gaze back down to the book and flicks through pages while everyone else is taking their moves. It's just glorious. I just love it so much. It's kind of, it's a game that does so much with its art and its design and its character work. Um, mm. I don't think it would work anything like as well without it. And and the fact that I didn't mention it, but like the main kind of dynamic of the characters, rather than before when you know these were characters who hopefully persist through many tens of hours of games, um, you know, are only going to be on this one run. And so one of the key ideas is trying to engender relationships between them by oh really yeah. So you've got these meters between characters that are either going to fill up or down, depending on various things that can either be like. You know, this character keeps healing this character, so they're going to form a relationship. But the same character not healing another character would mean that they might have a negative relationship. Mm. The positive relationships eventually turn into like really amazing buffs, like incredible stuff. Like every time this character does a certain move, the other character will get a free move, which is like a huge thing um, in this game. Um, uh, so that's really cool. And then, uh, but the, what's also quite cool is that the negative relationships. So, for example, I was about to lend uh, land the killing blow on one of the bosses um, uh, in the game, uh, but what happened was I had a negative relationship of like hatred. I think it was between two characters, which which meant that uh, when my character went to deliver that blow, the other character stabbed them in the back and killed them. They happened to be on death's door already, oh, God. And so they just died. Um, and it was just, yeah, it, it was just really funny because I hadn't accounted for it. Um, and obviously, was it that funny? Te- that's the that's the kind of thing that would make me flip out and heave my PC through a window. I think <laughs> it was one of those things where it was it's it's telegraphed enough to you that this sort of thing is possible. Mm. Um, and you know, having a character on death's door and a character standing behind them who hates them <laughs> with every kind of you know fiber of their being. Um, and is slowly going mad from from all the Lovecraftian beasties. It just it didn't make me go crazy because it just felt um, in universe. And actually, generally, um, because the runs are shorter and because you've got a bunch of kind of unlockable points, you know, that are that are more plentiful, the better you've done on a run. But because I mean, like the first chapter, I, I, I think I understand the geometry is that like there's a series of chapters which build to a kind of you know a a long the longest most intense run of the game you can do the first one is like basically two areas long um and so the time sink is never that brutal and you're always going to be unlocking stuff when you get back so something like that happening the game is much more set up to allow you to enjoy it like a death in Spelunky um, rather than in Darkest Dungeon where it felt like an absolute tragedy to lose one of your characters (laughs) um deep into the game yeah does I mean, do the combat synergies work pretty much as they did in the first game? More or less. I mean, they've simplified it a lot. They've made it the numbers much chunkier and bigger, or rather um, smaller. <laughs> uh, they're sort of um, easier to understand, I guess, is what I mean. The numbers are smaller and therefore more significant. The the percentages are always very, very like 
this will add 25% chance of, of so-and-so rather than like before where it could have been like, well, this trinket gives you 2% and, you know, and this mm. one gives you 1% and it all kind of adds up. So they've done a much clearer job on that. And they've also, you can press a button to bring up the kind of tokens screen at any moment. And the tokens are all of the, and there's a lot of them, the various buffs and debuffs and special states that you characters can get into. Um and you find yourself looking at that a lot because there's loads of them. They're often quite similar, but understanding them is is key to to success, I think. And I'm just sort of um, you know pushing at the edges of them at the moment. Um, but it's you know it's done pretty well. Like there's one move that most characters have a move that will basically uh, afflict an enemy with something called combo, and that means that if another if one of your guys does another thing on them that affects that same symbol, then something cool will happen basically. So it like it's mm. it, it's set up to kind of get you to do to find those synergies without being like a high level genius for those things. Um, like I'm an idiot with this stuff, so I, I I really appreciate being kind of pointed in the right direction with those symbols and and the, the the spells and the the skills will literally say things like if enemy has this smiley face on them and you hit them with this, it will blind them or stun them and and stuff yeah. like that. So it's it's nicely grokkable and you don't have to fiddle around in in, in sub-menus to find out what stuff does. Have you kind of experimented? I assume there's new characters and stuff. Uh, yeah, I haven't I haven't played any of the newer characters yet. I've only unlocked a, a couple. I have to admit, I'm kind of scared of the new characters. <laughs> I feel a bit nervous about them. It's kind of, I kind of want to stick with the guys I know for, for now. Um, uh, I mean, there's one of the characters in Darkest Dungeon is the Flagellant, who is this kind of insane-looking guy um, this was in the original game, and they've just really they've just added him for the sort of 1.0 release. And he was the guy, um, angry looking guy, uh, sort of standing in supplication. And he was at his most powerful if you can kind of keep him on the brink of death. So as long as he's just like about to die, his like skills are massively buffed. So a lot of the your time with him is about trying to damage him and hurt him without killing him oh, so that he can use his like um, you know like like the baddie in the Da Vinci Code sort of levels of guilt. Catholic guilt to um to uh, fuck people up basically. So I'm quite excited to uh, unlock the flagellant because he's ridiculous. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to have to play it a bit more. I did um I I don't know put a, uh, an hour into it or something like that. I didn't um uh, I did I did play the first Darkest Dungeon, but I my recollection of it is n- almost negligible. I, I don't think I got very far in it, possibly because the atmosphere of dread <laughs> was simply too much for me, and it, it felt um it felt kind of like punitive in a, in a way which was completely unabashed and, and totally right for the tone of the game but i just don't think i was in the mindset to to, to deal with that at the time um yes and and darkest dungeon 2 does have a an easy mode uh, darkest dungeon 1 they eventually put in a slightly easier mode um this one has launched with a, a sort of radiant torch that you can put on your um stagecoach um and makes the game significantly easier which i appreciate like it's one of those things where like well i'm going to try See, see how far I can get on default, hmm. and um, if I can't, I will feel no shame whatsoever in, in slapping that thing on my in my truck and no doubt dying and <laughs> on World Two <laughs> again. Um, but actually, I can see uh, that un- unlockable in the menu is a whole bunch of like difficulty modifiers and things like that, which which is always good fun. Like for a certain kind of person, if if not me, <laughs> is this the kind of game that once you complete, you'll you'll be done with? Yeah, I think so. I think so. For me, because these games don't come easily for me, I'm like, I'm always going to be pretty much done. Like Slay the Spire, I've now managed to win 
with like two out of the four characters, I think. And that that's fine for me. Like I'll take it. Mm. I'm never gonna play that game again. Um so yeah, I imagine it'll be similar with this one. It's it's wonderful how um much Red Hook uh such an unfortunate name. Chris Thurston mentioned this when he first mentioned Darkest Dungeon years ago on the podcast, that they are named after the most racist HP Lovecraft story, which is a real shame. They should have chosen a better name. Because that book that story is just H.P. Uh, Lovecraft visiting New York and going, oh, aren't there a lot of ethnic minorities here? Ugh. Um, <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, but <laughs> aside from that, they are really good. Uh, like, early access has really meant early access for them. So they've actively listened to the community and they use kind of early access in its intended form, you know, to make the game better, uh, to give people a substantive portion of it to play. Um and that has like benefits further down the road because there is now a full Steam release for a, a fan-made mod for um, Darkest Dungeon 1, uh, which looks absolutely fantastic. And I probably will play that at some point, I think. Um, I always love it when they do when developers are able to do that thing of going like, we've taken this as far as we can go. Like, let's hand it over to the community like completely and utterly and see what they can do with it. Yeah, it's a big step to take. Right. Yeah, yeah, it must be must be a, it must be a scary <laughs> thing to do, but I mean, it makes people love you, doesn't it? Mm. Um, yeah. So, what was the um, so it's been in early access up until now, and then with the Steam release, it's popped out of early access. Is that right? Yes, it's in it's in one Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, so what was the big difference between playing it last week and playing it this week, essentially? Uh, uh, or is it like, just incrementally reaching this point up until now? So the difference was not not huge differences um, for me personally. I'm sure if you're deep into the game, I've been playing it since the beginning. There's loads. There is that that difficulty mode um, and a new character. They changed the geometry of the the kind of runs quite significantly. So it used to be you had to like beat four areas to get to the boss, um, and now it's like three. And one of those is just like an introductory fight. So like the first chapter, which is called Denial. Um, is uh, is relatively short and I feel feels completable to me. You know, I've, I've managed to get to the boss of that a couple of times already. Um, so yeah, it's, they've done that. I mean, one thing I would say is like I'm playing it on Steam Deck, and it's fine, but it, no no controller support, um, which I wish they I wish they put on put in. And if I had my way, they would have included with um, uh, you know launch version feels pretty pretty standard to put some controls in there. Mm. But with the Steam Deck, it's easy to to do it yourself. It just would have been nice. Although saying that, the Switch, <laughs> the Switch port of uh, Darkest Dungeon had uh, a control scheme unlike any other game ever released, um, <laughs> which, uh, which is notoriously um, tricky for anyone to ever understand, um, and involves you know sort of contorting your fingers in weird chords in order to do basic things like select characters and <laughs> choose options. I do like the uh, the whole. Uh... I mean, what era is it sort of equivalent to? Is it medieval or is it slightly... <laughs> it's kind of... It sort of feels... It feels love, Lovecrafty, I guess. Like early 20th century, I think. Maybe very early 20th century. Oh, really? Uh, no, maybe not. It's kind of... It's kind of turn of the century, maybe. Um, but also medieval. It's all It's all very confusing. <laughs> um, yeah, it's... Um, it, 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 it's funny, it kind of... It's it's got it's anachronistic in a whole bunch of ways, but actually it feels all very consistent. Um, so you know it's kind of a hard question to answer because it feels very true to whatever era it's from. It's although it's mm. not actually from any particular era, 
Um, I do think that like your own work, uh, Teeth, is uh, slightly of a piece with it, actually. It has a similar sense of kind of um, uh, history and ahistorical um, monstrosities. It feels like something I'm interested in, for sure. I was, in fact, I, when I was, um, I was playing it, I was thinking back to um, a book I just read called uh, Between Two Fires, or maybe I hadn't just read it. Earlier this year, I read it. Don't know why that detail is important. Nobody cares. But it's uh, a sort of a, a medieval journey through um, uh, plague-ridden France. Um, but there are there are forces at work which are which are much worse than the plague itself, um, and it uh, becomes a, a horror story. Really, but that's uh, I don't know if I'd, I'd recommend it as a great book, but it's certainly <laughs> has it got um, pig boys in it? Has it got what pig, pig boys? boys. <laughs> pig boys. You know, I think it does yeah, have there you go. at least one pig boy. <laughs> Good. There's, there's there's a lion boy. Uh, yeah. There's other other creatures. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's horrible. Like there's some really grotty, horrible, grimy mm-hmm. horror stuff. Of, uh, more or less guarantee, I'm going to read that. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What have you been playing, Marsh? You know, I've I've played a bunch of uh, games a little. Um, so here are some very partial opinions <laughs> on all of those. I've played about seven hours of Jedi Survivor, as I did promise to do. Um, uh, but you know, quite a lot of those seven hours were waiting for parts of the scenery to load in. <laughs> uh, so um, uh, it's not uh, it's not optimized for my particular rig. Um, I actually, I, I really like it, and I think there's uh, a lot of stuff that it does, which interestingly evolves what Jedi Fallen Order were doing. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't want to say too much about it because I know that Chris has played it as well, and he'll have much more informed takes uh, on it, as hopefully I will when we're we next able to pod together. But I will say that um, it's sort of been an awakening for me in some ways because for a long, long time like the minimum requirement specs for AAA games have been a total lie. <laughs> um, like I've been below consideration for most popular releases for at least two years now, probably longer. And, and you know, all those games just played fine, uh, even though I wasn't, uh, I wasn't meeting the minimum specs. I'm not like cranking the settings at all. Uh, and, you know, games have sort of plateaued for me at the graphical quality of the ps4 <laughs> and but, but to be honest that's absolutely fine i mean I, I used to be a bit of a magpie for like shiny graphics but i just find i don't particularly care as much now and the games still look better on their lowest low setting the games in general have for every preceding year of my life which is you know that's, i mean it's, i don't know why that that seems striking that's just how time works yeah <laughs> but it just it, it, as time has gone on it feels weirder and weirder for me to complain that the, the graphics aren't you know uh, amazing i don't particularly need to play anything on a 4k screen i don't have a 4k screen and uh, you know i'm quite happy with you know textures looking blurry or whatever uh, anyway but with survivor we've definitely hit the point now where my pc just can't handle even the lowest settings and uh, my machine chugs to a standstill at various points and that's not a that's not a criticism of survivor my piece they do not specify my pc as being able to, <laughs> to play this game so it's lucky that it even runs um but uh yes I, i'm about seven hours in and it's getting it's, it's getting it's getting worse the longer i'm in the game <laughs> I, I suspect that's possibly because they've Spent more time optimizing the early levels, possibly to avoid people refunding it early yeah. on. Um, and but also it does start relatively linear and then opens up in ways which would be graphically taxing. Um, but yeah, at this point and the current trajectory at which my PC is uh, 
sweating heavily. Can you have a sweat trajectory? It's on, a, it's on the sweat trajectory, Jamie. Um, but it, I'm probably going to have to upgrade my PC before I, <laughs> I complete it. It's funny. Um, it sort of it weirdly it harkens back to a more civilized age when, uh, <laughs> you know, I know you're vaguely the same age as me. And back in them, their 90s, you'd have that mm. thing where you'd go and buy a PC video game from the shop, probably Virgin Megastore, and you'd take it home <laughs> and it, you'd put it in your PC and it wouldn't work. And that was just it. You try and make it work for a couple of weeks, and then you try and patch it with some early internet patches, and it wouldn't work. And that was just forty pounds that you would never see again, and, and a game that you would just own now and never play. I did that with several, several games, and then that went away for a while, and now it's back for you specifically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm going to try and I'm going to try and resuscitate my my PC's chances. I think I need to. So I've taken some advice. Uh, I will t- probably be in our Discord channel begging the more educated members of our community to to help <laughs> me at some point. But more RAM, new graphics card, those seem to be the things that will help. That feels, um, that feels like a solid choice, yeah. <laughs> but I, I think I think there's uh, there's poised to be sort of an announces in both the, the field of memory and also graphics in the next coming weeks, which might affect prices. So I'm having to sit here and uh, I'm also on the sweat trajectory, uh, waiting, <laughs> waiting and sweating, hoping that uh, the prices tumble a little bit before I shell out. Well, we, we look forward to uh, 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 further thoughts on uh, Jedi. What's it called? Lost Survivor? Lost, Lost Man? Just Survivor. Oh, Jedi, Jedi Survivor. Survivor. Yeah. And you can ask Chris questions like, um, when does this take place in the Star Wars timeline? And uh... <laughs> What are the hairy men who yell yeah. called? <laughs> and then I'll misspell it in the in the episode title and lots of people will be angry. <laughs> uh, I, like did, I, didn't, I didn't troll them on purpose, honestly. That was, that was just, just a genuine mistake. Um, but I also played um, Shadows of Doubt a little bit, uh, which is currently uh, a very, very interesting game, currently in early access. Uh, it's a it's a murder mystery murder solving game rather, but in a in a proc gen city, a procedural procedural, if you will. Hey. <laughs> um, so the the murders themselves are, are generated, and uh, the city they're being uh, solved in is generated, and you. Uh, go to the scene of the crime, scout it, possibly commit many of your own crimes by accident, and then you know uh, sort through the evidence in, a, in an attempt to kind of uh, very um, loosely pin the blame on a particular person. And it's remarkable just how incredibly open and free from um, that is allowed to be, and yet the kind of the purpose in the world feels very focused. Um, there's a sort of handholdy tutorial. Uh, murder, um, in it, which is set in a <laughs> static seed of the game, uh, so you can you can get, kind of get acquainted with stuff. Uh, a name is slid under your door on a piece of paper, and then you look up that name in in the, the phone book, and you figure out what address they live at. You go there, you break in, you find a corpse, you inspect the corpse, you steal things for no obvious reason, <laughs> you scan for fingerprints. You've got this cool little fingerprint scanner, which uh, you can, like uh, there's a safe. Uh, in in the apartment, and the and the door is open, so it's reasonable to assume that whoever killed the person left a fingerprint on the safe, and you scan it, and then you can scan the fingerprint of the dead person, and you can see if those two fingerprints match or not, and they don't. So the spare fingerprint is probably the murders murderers, and and so and so on and so forth. And you sort of, as you gather this information, you can 
put this information into uh, a sort of conspiracy map interface, you know, the kind uh, like, you know, Charlie from Always Sunny with the, the red string everywhere. Um, and uh, you, you kind of pin all these little uh, post-its essentially of information that you've encountered like names and addresses and workplaces and ID cards and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, that's about as far as I've got really kind of yeah. deploying steps because in the tutorial mission, as you kind of just get through the, um, the the work of of pacing around the particular crime scene, the cops turn up, and you have to escape. Um, and the tutorial encourages you to escape uh, using the air vents, <laughs> but I found it hasn't hasn't uh, given me a sufficient number of hints about how to get out of them successfully. Because <laughs> uh, every time so far, I have dispensed myself into somebody's shower or or their <laughs> bedroom, and then I've been immediately beaten or shot to death. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, maybe I should just hang out in the air vents until the cops leave, but it's not quite clear where they are or if they have left or if they ever do. And you eventually start to get cold in the air vents as well, which seems right, like yeah. a bad thing. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I haven't, uh, I haven't, I've, I've restarted several times um, and still haven't found a way uh, out of <laughs> out of the building. Um the other thing that's about it, that I, I suspect, will be finessed across the, the course of early access is the the. Um, I mean, actually, maybe this won't be finessed. This is poss possibly part of the point of the game is that the amount of information you can gather and pin to your conspiracy board is absolutely boggling. Um, I found it very difficult to manage that space by just pinning every single piece of information I can in there, um, and I, I suspect that. You know, uh, like, I mean, just by scooting around the, the scene of the crime in the tutorial, I'd accumulated more information than I could literally fit on the screen. Yeah. Uh, and I, I suspect the game is intended for you to make more sensible decisions about what is relevant and what isn't relevant. It wasn't obvious to me how I would go about making a decision on what was relevant and what wasn't. Uh, I, f uh, I mean having known about crimes <laughs> in reality, <laughs> it often seems like the maximum amount of information you can collect is the best amount of information you can collect. So I, I'm not quite sure what I was, what I was meant, how I was meant to sift and do that on, uh, on the go as well, when potentially the cops might burst through the door. Um, that felt like hazard because if, if you simply don't get enough information, then I just don't know how that that point in the game is completely defunct. Like you're just not going to solve the crime. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I don't know where it goes from there. Um, uh, yeah, it's interesting because I keep on dying the... in people's showers. But yes, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the fantasy you want, like you know, some people just want the fantasy of um, um, tying things together with red string on a board, and that's well and good. I guess the other like fantasy that you might want is like the moment where you're staring at a jumble of massive information and slowly something comes into focus that you hadn't seen before. Um, like in that Frasier episode where he tries to solve one of his dad's old cases and gets convinced that it was a monkey that was the uh, killer. It's a very <laughs> funny episode. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, there's probably better examples than that. So it's like, it, it's if the game will be able to like generate those moments that will be the kind of acid test for it, I think. Like mm. if you can have that thing where there is that huge mass of information and you suddenly move one to one side and you, you suddenly see something you didn't before. Um, that would be cool if they could pull that off. Yeah, I mean, I, I suspect one one easy thing that it could do 
that it doesn't do and surprises me that it doesn't do is just pause time when you're on the conspiracy board screen um, <laughs> yeah it feels like that 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 process of sifting information is something that you should sit down and like i quite like games where there's like a, an organizational aspect I, I think I talked about um, strange horticulture the other on uh, one of the previous podcasts where you you essentially labeling and sorting plants and so forth. Um, and I feel like it's necessary to to organize the information carefully in this. But because you're going through the crime scene under time pressure, I'm just like throwing pins into this board at seemingly random, and then un, <laughs> you know working out where they should go, what information they should sit beside. Is uh, is a momentous task then thereafter, and I just feel like, wh- why not just pause time and, and allow me to really think about how I'm organising the information I'm collecting? That would be a, a, a big relief. Um, but to- uh, talking of uh, evil monkeys, um, I learned the other day that the Earl of Sandwich, who gave his name to the sandwich in that he invented the sandwich, um, once mistook uh, a monkey for the devil. That's my little bit of history knowledge for you. <laughs> yeah. Is there any other information, or is this just is this just something he said in passing one time? Uh, no, I believe he was. I, I think he saw a monkey and was convinced it was uh, <laughs> it was Satan. Had he seen a monkey before? Because I can sort of understand if you'd never seen one before or knew what one was. One suspects he had not. Um, yeah. But then, I mean, uh, he he was also a massive piss artist, so he could have just been shit faced. It's not it's not easy to tell, really. Did he invent the sandwich, or did he just give his name to the sandwich? He gave his name to the sandwich, but he his his um his dickheadedness prompted the creation of the sandwich because he needed a quick snack between losing hands at cards, right? Um, and he refused to leave the gambling table, so he demanded that uh, some meat be brought to him, just slap it between two pieces of bread. Um, and so some servant, in fact, created the sandwich and brought it to him. But then other people uh, in the gambling dens that he frequented, so the story goes, uh, started ordering it as well, saying, I'll have what sandwich is having. And then, you know, that became, I'll just have a sandwich. Uh, and thus the sandwich was born, uh, possibly completely apocryphal. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Did you know that, that thing about the um, the broccoli family who own the um, James Bond? James Bond. Oh, yeah. And like, no, what, what about them? Well, <laughs> I saw a tweet about it. Like, oh god, broccoli! Imagine being named after broccoli. How posh must you have to be to, at some point, that decision been made? But actually, <laughs> but they're such an old and posh family that broccoli is named after them. They're no. the original broccoli <laughs> because they're no way. some ancestor deep in their past managed to create broccoli <laughs> um, through various uh, yeah, breeding systems. So yeah, I always thought that was kind of kind of insane. <laughs> wow! Yeah, trying to one up Sir Arthur Choke and his <laughs> arty Choke. That's a lie. He doesn't exist. Shall I tell you about the final game that I've been playing as well? Please. Uh, that is the uh, the Case of the Golden Idol uh, DLC called The Spider of Lanka. Uh, and we've talked about uh, the Case of the Golden Idol multiple times on this podcast. It's a very good um, mystery-solving sort of point-and-click uh, information game, somewhere between like a hidden object game and uh, the Return of the Obra Dinn uh, But I won't rehash exactly how it works and so forth now because you can just go back and listen to the podcast in which we discuss it. And it's very good. It's still good. And the DLC is also good. Still Uh, good. It's it's a prequel. Um, 
and it comprises three very elaborate uh, scenes, uh, almost on the cusp of uh, being overwhelming, in fact. Um, I think if I'd come to it hot on the tails of completing the, the main game, that would have felt more natural. But jumping back into it, I was, I was, uh, uh, I was a little bit um, panicked by the amount of uh, stuff going on that I'd have to kind of work out. Um, and I would suggest to anybody returning to the game, if they've already played it, they should probably, because um, it's a prequel, it refers to things in the um, opening scenario of the main game. Um, and for the, for the prequel DLC to make complete sense, you have to remember <laughs> some of that stuff. Yeah. Um, so if you've played the original, it's probably worth popping open your save game and, and rereading the synopsis uh, that you get as a sort of reward for completing the first scene, just so you know who these characters are and where they're going. Um, but uh, I get the impression that this is going to be the first of many bits of DLC. Perhaps uh, I, I would be absolutely delighted by that. Uh, it's a it's a great format, and I don't think um, it would get tired by uh, lots and lots of DLC in the same format um, being issued. I would play every one. I think I always think that episodic thing is a kind of holy grail um, in video games. That seems like. Um self-evident that like it should happen a lot and it tends not to like the um the telltale um games kind of made a fair attempt on it and then things like life is strange have done various versions of it and things like that but like it's just something i think is a really nice proposition if there's a game that you love and they release a whole bunch of episodes for it like i always think that's something i would quite like to have and i've never really had before the closest i can think of is um like kentucky route zero although they were like leaving Mm. like many many years between releases um but even still that was like wonderfully exciting of like you know waiting for the next one to come along and having sort of no idea what was going to be in it Mm. um and i think particularly with games that have a kind of narrative spin for them it's it's really interesting um wildermyth is a game i'm like trying to get back to quite soon and i Mm. think that game has a like perfect platform for new story content to basically be added indefinitely. Um, and I, yeah, I think that would be, you know, I'd, I'd love to like work on something like that one day where I mm. was just kind of, um, you know, a sort of sort of um, service game, but with story instead of um, shitty uh, cosmetic <laughs> upgrades. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think, I mean, the conventional wisdom uh, certainly back from the kind of days when the, uh, the adventure games at Telltale were making was that, you know, there was always uh, diminishing returns uh, on, on DLC um, because you're tying the purchase of this new product to the existence of an old product. And obviously people who haven't played the old one, won't necessarily get on board to play the new thing. So maybe the, but I was going to say, maybe the the, the more sensible thing to do is just to release a, a large number of standalone games, but based on exactly the same format um, and then bundle them potentially. But then you wouldn't have the kind of interrelationship of, of narrative that uh, is maybe what, what attracts you to that, that proposition. But I mean, like you say, now there's so many service games out there, maybe people would be more willing to stick with the game through multiple seasons it feels like there's something there like i'm always i'm always thinking about like tv in the 90s which i think is just because i was a kid then but like the fact that a series of the x files would be 24 episodes <laughs> for many it was just an endless amount of tv mm. and it meant you could have these like i mean ultimately ridiculous but when they were up and running entirely thrilling like serpentine plots um with you know arcs and twists and turns that ran over many years and 
I always think that the, there's there's some version of, of a game that would fit into that mode. I don't know quite what it would look like or what it would be, but I do think there's something there. X-Files was also very much Monster of the Week for the most part. So maybe that's that's how you do it. You have a, a, a staple of the series, which is in, each individual thing is very self-enclosed and standalone. doesn't require knowledge of the of the rest of the material. And then over time, you build a large enough audience that you can take the risk of having multi-episode arcs and and, uh, and tie the products together in some way. I feel like we've just invented the MCU. <laughs> yeah, oh God, yeah. We have, yeah. Um, shall I talk about the other thing I've been playing? Yeah. So uh, I have got a new job, which I can't talk about yet, but I will uh, very soon. Um, for all you Jamie heads out there who are hanging on my every uh, every move, um, but I've got a, a job in the games industry, and one of the things that they have in the office is a PS5, which I am, I think is really cool because <laughs> I am a little boy and I love a, a new PlayStation. Um, and they've also got a PSVR 2, uh, which I took it upon myself to set up because I'd never really had a go on PSVR or indeed any um, virtual reality kit whatsoever despite having um, written quite a good deal of a very bad TV show about virtual reality. When we went to a place that was supposed to uh, give us a go on all the helmets, they wouldn't. They just wanted to talk about their own <laughs> business ideas. Um, so I never got <laughs> much of a chance with the VR kit. Um, uh, yeah, so um, I I set that up. Uh, the PSVR 2 is really cool. Um, the setup is re- really pleasingly sci-fi. And also, this is the thing that, uh, I, I was really, really excited by. The PSVR 2 has a button on the side of it which turns the, um, which kind of essentially simulates the um, visor going clear so you can see the room around you. Um, but it does it in this kind of sci fi, mm. black and white kind of way. So I got into the office really early and started setting up this VR thing which involves like painting a sort of cyber gunk on the floor to create a play space for yourself and doing a whole bunch of cool stuff like that. Um, and then pressing a button on the side of the VR set, which, as I say, turns allows you to see what's going on in the room uh, at, a, at a button press, which is really good because, you know, one of my main problems with VR, uh, at least my anticipation would be, is that I am terrified that someone's going to come up behind me and jump on me and scare me. Um <laughs> Or rip the helmet off my head and annihilate my mind, like <laughs> happens in all sci-fi movies when someone gets unceremoniously unplugged from the Matrix. Um, I don't know if that's true for real life. Uh, but it was quite a funny moment where I was setting it up and then I pressed the uh, button and there was just suddenly the cleaner was there, um, <laughs> sort of un- unloading the dishwasher in the office and I hadn't seen him there before. And he must have thought I looked like an absolute idiot. Uh, wearing this big thing on my head. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so I, I played the uh, boxing game with PSVR 2, um, which is um, Horizon Call of the Mountain, question mark. I'm literally going to look up that <laughs> right now. I think that's what it's called. <laughs> Call of the Mountain, yeah. Uh, which is spectacular, which is like a full-blown, you know, super triple-A feeling um, VR game, uh, which I played for about half an hour, 45 minutes, and was very impressed with, and then kind of felt like I was done with it after that. I was like, oh yeah, you climb walls, and you fire a bow and arrow, and it looks very pretty. But honestly, like I was a little underwhelmed by it. I felt like, as my first VR experience, I was kind of really, really hoping to have my socks blown off by it. And although it was cool, it was... Meh. 
I don't know. It, it didn't blow my socks off. But then I did something which has been an ambition of mine for years and years and years, um, which is play the game Thumper on the VR Ooh. set. The Thumper is one of my favorite games ever, I think. If you don't know it, it's the game made by a couple of people who I think at one point worked on like Guitar Hero type games and decided to go away and make the opposite uh, of the Guitar <laughs> Hero game. Uh, but with similar-ish mechanics where you are a beetle hurtling through a void um, and, and sort of uh, trying to sort of hit corners and uh, notes on a kind of mad uh, monorail <laughs> heading into this kind of insane fractal space while weird um, semi-ambient droning and arrhythmic uh, pounding uh, soundtrack comes to you and you sort of forced to contend with your own sense of nausea and disorientation in order to uh, succeed through these incredibly punishing levels. It's wonderful um, and <laughs> can make you feel really quite sick, um, but in a beautiful way. It's like it's got the most physical feeling sort of uh, sense of momentum to it, which I just adore. Your so pitch this is one of the games you like seems to be this game harmed me. <laughs> yeah, I really do like it. I love it. I love to be overwhelmed and disorientated and upset. I think that's just like. I remember it was um, the first time I played it was when my baby, first, my first child had just been born and she was sat on my lap sleeping and I was, you know, up late doing the late shift and the the the, the judder of the um, controller and my knee trying to keep time to the kind of um, the beats, which are always in kind of disgusting time signatures like seven, eight, um, was doing a really good job of keeping her asleep. So I ended up in this kind of weird flow state where I was like, no, I need to keep the beat so I can keep my baby asleep so I can, uh, you know, get past this level of Thumper. Um, and also Thumper has the music from Thumpers by um, uh, one of the two people who make the games. And he's also the guitarist in a band called Lightning Bolt, who are one of my favorite bands. They're like an amazing noise rock uh, band with maybe the best drummer currently working and this is the other guy who's also really good and he does the music but it's not like that music at all it's like like i say incredibly disorientating and weird and horrible anyway i decided to have a go of that on psvr 2 and my god it was so good it was just so fantastic and that was like the experience i was definitely looking forward to you know because how are you? I mean, what what does VR bring to it? Like, what's the, what's the change in perspective? Because in the in the game, when you're playing on a on a desktop, you're looking down at this beetle. Are you in the beetle in <laughs> VR? You're you're actually not. It's it's in in a funny way. It's not that different at all. Your view is just you, you're you're sort of maybe a little bit closer and a little bit closer, sort of into the shoulder of the beetle, maybe, but not by that much. Um, but the ability to sort of look up and around you just gives the whole space this extraordinary sense of scale and enormity. You, you still control it with the, um, you know, the, the normal controller, um, but um, everything just seems on this colossal scale, and it is that spent sense of space um, that really does it. Also, I didn't know that they could do this, but the helmet vibrates as well, <laughs> which is quite cool. So Thumper has all these amazing kind of almost like dubstep drops, but without the sense of satisfaction <laughs> when, you know, the sound will suddenly get sucked out of something as you as you hit a marker. And they've done an amazing job at, you know, um, uh, using the sort of uh, vibrations in the controller and the vibrations in the helmet to uh, to sort of put that in, put that right into your body. Um, 
and with both like earplugs in and the volume on max, it was just like, yeah, like being on really, really horrible drugs, um, uh, <laughs> but in a good way. And then at the end of every level of Thumper, um, a big uh, face comes over the horizon. And he's a guy called Crackhead, I believe is the, the name the developers give him. And he has this horrible uh, distorted face who's the only vaguely like human looking thing in, or even like, apart from the beetle, the only like vaguely animal or sort of sentient kind of life that's there that isn't a kind of, you know, big fractal, um, you know, cuboid space thing flying away from you, this big horrible face full of distorted shapes. And in the game, when you play it on a normal screen, it's fine. He comes over. He is scary and freaky. In VR, he is fucking enormous. And he looms over the horizon and towers above you as this kind of massive entity. Um, And it is just absolutely spectacular and so overwhelming and disorientating and frightening. He just looks completely mental. Um, like you know, like like what he sort of <laughs> portrayed as in the game as some sort of horrible god come to swallow your beetle form and <laughs> and and prevent your escape from this place. Uh, and yeah, that was just amazing. And the moment when you know this is just the first level you fight him and get over level, but the moment when you sort of send the the little bead back to him, uh, and it does a really big like dubstep drop, and he sort of splits open and all light pouring out of him. Yeah, just just so good. Um, you take off the visor and realise you've killed the cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would have been that would have been awesome. Uh, no, uh, it was it was great. I was I can't wait to go back and have another go on that one um, because that was just the first level as well. The game gets more and more deranged uh, with each with each level, mm. so I can't imagine what it would be like to play the new game plus mode on that which is where you uh, only get one hit and then you have to play through the whole game in a one uh, so all like 13 levels, um, and you can only get hit twice. But like I can imagine putting a VR helmet on and doing that. would You just like transcend reality by the end of that. You become, <laughs> become molecules and, and uh, become one with nature itself. <laughs> hmm. And I assume um, this isn't like a full body involvement. You're still using a pad and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. I just sat down on a chair, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> a brightly lit office, using a using a PS5 remote uh, to play yeah. it. But, what kind? Yeah, of, so, what kind of space are you in? Are you able to explore other games in the catalogue that do require more kind of waggling, and flailing? Yeah. Well, Call of the Mountain is all about like rock climbing. So, um, oh, right. Yeah. So it is, you do have these kind of weird, the remotes are very, very strange that you normally use. So Thumper just uses a, 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 a normal like DualShock thing. But the, the the normal remotes you have are these weird kind of claw things you put on your hand, which if anyone listening uh, ever um, gets in contact with, I defy you to put them on the right way the first time around. <laughs> They're so counterintuitive <laughs> about which way you put your hands through them. Um but like, uh, yeah, I mean, in, in Call of the Mounting, the, the rock climbing just involves, you know, reaching out with one hand and grabbing and then pulling up with another. And and to be fair to that game, I know I like negged it a little bit, but it does feel incredibly natural and incredibly tactile um, very, very early on. Um, you know, you sort of, as soon as you start it, you're like, oh, okay. And then with the bow and arrow as well, it's all very, very natural. I could just feel myself feeling like the stuff people talk about when they talk about the limitations of VR. And also in this game, you are sort of walking around, you know, you're using an analog stick to control your movement. 
and I know like um, games like um, Alex and stuff like that had better ways of sort of compensating for that slight sense of disconnect between your body and the body of the avatar you're playing. So yeah, I'll be interested to you know maybe play a few more VR games and get a sense of it. But it'll be hard pressed to uh, beat Thumper because my god, that game's a masterpiece. <laughs> well, I'd be very interested to hear what you have to say about Alex. Yeah, I'll, de- I'll definitely play it. I'll definitely play it one time. Is it on? Is it on PSVR? I don't know if they've released it elsewhere, or is it just? Uh... Oh, good point. Right, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, that that probably isn't the right suggestion then. <laughs> I don't know what is on PSVR actually, apart from that whale demo. Yes, there is that. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, is like you know, um, I believe they cost like three hundred and fifty quid now for a PSVR two, which mm. is a lot of money. Which you know, I'm not going to spend myself, but it does feel like it's getting towards uh, you know a much more affordable place now. Um, that they'll be a bit more accessible. Um, you know, it's it's not out of the realms of possibility that an office space, you know, will ha- will have one of those in there for people to have a go on and things like that. So I think that's you know, it's a good sign of like these things becoming a little bit more usable for normal people and not like people with three hundred fifty quid <laughs> to spend yeah. on that. You know, on top of a console as well. I'm still not really into the idea of communal VR. Uh... Because of no. the, the sharing of bodily fluids doesn't excite me. I, d- I went to the um, London Aquarium when I was back in the UK, mm. um, which uh, which is kind of terrible uh, in all the ways <laughs> that you might imagine it would be. But it had a weird section, which was a VR experience, all these pods uh, these, uh, with children clambering in and, and greasing up all, mm. the, all the VR equipment. And just the idea, I mean, God, I mean... That's just a like one giant petri dish, surely. <laughs> Someone told me recently that they went to do a VR experience thing with their dad, and the one that they ended up doing was the one where you're standing on a beach while Bjork uh, stands in front of you naked and sings into your face, um, and <laughs> she said that it was one of one of the most awkward and <laughs> unnerving experiences they'd ever had. You know, she's like really close to you. And completely naked and singing right at you. <laughs> and apparently it was just like, if you found yourself in this situation in real life, <laughs> you wouldn't be uh, entranced. You'd be deeply frightened. <laughs> Leave me alone, Bjork. <laughs> Try to enjoy a day out with the kids. Is that it? Shall we call time on this podcast? Let's call time on it. Yeah, very well. Uh, that is the podcast that we're going to do for you. Today, all these recordings are uploaded as videos to YouTube. You can find other stuff by us at the address for that, which is youtube.com slash Crate and Crowbar. Thanks, as always, to our backers on Patreon. You can back us, too, if you like, at patreon.com slash Crate and Crowbar. You're only charged for the podcast we make. We don't charge you weekly, and we don't charge you for the lock-ins currently. So it's just these game pods that you get charged for. Um, Or you can just join our lovely Discord community. They're lovely. Um, The link for that is on our website, crateandcrowbar.com. That's it. I've been uh, a groveling peasant not worthy of a name. And I've been king of all men. And as Penny Mordant, the wielder of the Sword of Time, says, the king's example is that of love, and that is endless and timeless. We live in a cynical world to which the only antidote is service, duty, and love. Thank you from the uh, future Prime Minister of the UK for that message. Fucking hell. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) Ah... <sighs>